From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, how online investigators are speaking truth to power. Over the last few years, we've all heard a lot about so-called fake news and alternative facts. Into this morass of disinformation, a website emerged a couple of years ago called Bellingcat. It uses open sources and social media to investigate crimes and wartime abuses around the world. And it tries to get at the truth. Here's Bellingcat's founder, Elliot Higgins, explaining their name. It was uh, provided to me by a, a friend of mine who does uh, is a real writer. And he said, what do you think about Belling the Cat? And he explained the fable of Belling the Cat, where there was a, a group of mice who were very scared of a cat. So one of them came up with the idea of putting a bell around the cat's neck so they could hear it coming. And then um, they realized they didn't actually have a plan to do that. So we're teaching people how to bell the cat. The website has become so effective in its online investigations that just recently Russia made efforts to mask its digital trail by curtailing the use of smartphones in the military and asking troops not to post to social media while on deployment. For example, they are not allowed to use smartphones and other gadgets with geolocators. They mustn't reveal their whereabouts when they're talking to or writing to people, even family members. Also, soldiers. And his group has unearthed some remarkable discoveries. Remember when evidence proved it was a missile that took down Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 over Ukraine? Bellingcat was first to find that. Using photos taken by Russian servicemen, the group was able to link the convoy carrying the Buk missile launcher that downed MH17 to the Russian military. Furthermore, Bellingcat was able to identify more than 20... More recently, Bellingcat received a large grant to work on exposing facts about what's really happening on the ground in Yemen. I had a chance to speak to Elliot Higgins from his office in Leicester, England. Elliot, thank you for joining us. It's no problem. Tell us how Bellingcat came about. So um, back in 2011, I, I was kind of working in a kind of admin and finance career. Um, I, I had a job where um, I had quite a bit of free time on my hand. Basically, my company I was working for had lost its contract for housing asylum seekers. And I was kind of one of the last people in the office before they turned the lights out at the end of the contract. So I had some free time on my hand. And I started looking at um, the conflict in Libya just as out of interest in what was happening. And that there I saw there was a lot of information being shared on social media. Eventually, that led me to creating a blog called the Brown Moses blog in 2012, named after a Frank Zappa song, uh, rather randomly. And I started just doing posts about stuff I thought seemed to be interesting from these kind of conflict zones, and particularly Syria at that time. Just seeing if the videos, photographs, you know, social media use could answer some questions, like basic questions like what weapons did the rebels have? No one had kind of written a story about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked at the social media posts they were making, showing the weapons they were using, and wrote about what I saw there. Over the years, um, from 2012 to 2014, it, I kind of my profile raised, and more people were getting involved with doing this open source investigation. So, um, in July 2014, I launched Bellingcat, which was intending to kind of bring together people who are working on open source investigations and also share some of the ways we were doing it. And that was uh, launched just a few days before MH17 was shot down on July 17, 2014. And that acted as a kind of massive catalyst both for kind of my own work and the field of open source investigation in general. Explain what open source investigations are. 
there's always been um, the field of kind of open source intelligence where you take information that's publicly available and you kind of draw conclusions from that. So that, you know, many years ago, that could have been things like newspapers, um, you know, for example. Now we have a massive amount of online information that's being shared, um, you know, by all kinds of different people and actors. That's really grown a lot in the last 10 years since kind of smartphones first became popularized and then the growth of social media networks. Alongside that, we've also had new tools become available like Google Earth, um, Google Street View, various search engines. So by kind of using those, we're able to combine the kind of social media information and these new kind of databases of information, be they satellite imagery or whatever they may be, and kind of learn more about what's happening in remote situations, be they conflict zones or kind of other situations as well. And you actually hadn't had a background in military, had you? No, my uh, background was very different. I'd been working in these various kind of admin uh, roles for a, a number of years, and it was just an area that I found particularly interesting, just how I was seeing kind of from these conflict zones that there was this new kind of information coming from it. Um, and partly it came from just kind of having debates with people on the internet about you know what could be trusted from these um, places, because videos were always being posted with claims and counterclaims and actually find the truth behind them was uh, not always straightforward. How do you unwind a puzzle of a specific piece of, you know, for example, a missile? It depends. Uh, really what we're doing with Bellingcat is we've kind of got a set of tools that we can apply to each problem. For example, we did a recent study of a dispute between India and Pakistan where um, we had this claim that a F-16 had been shot down, but the other side was claiming it was a MiG that had been shot down. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of debate about this online. So we went through photographs of F-16 and MiG wreckage showing various parts of the aircraft, looking at details and photographs of the complete aircraft, like the way panels were soldered together or you know attached to each other and from that we could actually make a strong determination of it was in fact the MiG that was shot down and not this F-16 as some people have been claiming but that was kind of just going through the material looking at the kind of fine details you know compare it to reference imagery that was publicly available online. And you issued calls for additional images things like that? Yeah, so um, crowdsourcing has become something that's very useful in our work. That can be simply as just asking people on Twitter, um, you know, do you recognize this object or can you find this location? Um, Sometimes for the people who follow us, they kind of like doing these kind of little puzzles themselves. So they figure this stuff out. Uh, A really successful advantage of that has been uh, a recent campaign by Europol. They've been running uh, over the last year or so. And there they've asked members of the public to identify objects that they've basically cut out of um, abuse imagery and they've asked people to see if they can figure out you know what these objects are and we kind of got involved with that and started sharing um, these images for our own social media account you know these objects and many of these objects have been identified and Europol have now said that you know several victims have been identified and also some of the perpetrators have as well now. Can you actually walk us through a typical day I mean are there typical days? No, I, d- I don't. Not at the moment. I mean, my, I'm trying actually to move Bellingcat towards more typical days. By we're opening this office in the Hague, where we'll actually all be kind of, um, or a lot of us will be working from there, um, and there we'll be running this kind of new program focused on Yemen. But currently, we're kind of a bunch of people with our laptops spread across the road, going the world, going to events, um, you know, working remotely. Um, so it, it varies a great deal. There's no real typical day. And that's kind of, I think, what for Bellingcat members keeps it interesting and you know, exciting to do this work. But then how do you choose your topics? 
sometimes it's just there's a kind of breaking news event and a lot of information is coming out of it that needs to be kind of verified and reviewed um you know for example we had the kind of maga bomber late last year who um when he was arrested there was a lot of information about his name and then it was kind of verifying which accounts were his social media accounts if you know the van with all the weird stickers in was actually his van um so that's kind of something we might do um, then we have kind of a longer form projects where um, we've been looking into um, airstrikes in Yemen recently and we're turning that into a kind of large justice and accountability focused project where we're looking how open source evidence and investigations can be kind of archived to a standard where they can be used in future court cases. So let's take us to a specific investigation. Let's quickly explain um, what Scrapeball was. So the, um, the Scripple case was uh, in the UK. There was a former a member of the Russian intelligence service who had defected and was living quietly in Salisbury in the UK. And uh, like last year, he was poisoned along with his daughter. And it, the UK authorities blamed Russian intelligence services using a um, agent called Novichok. Mm-hmm. Now. After that, when the UK announced who the suspects were, Russia Today had the two suspects come on uh, TV and they claimed to be sports nutrition salesmen who had visited Salisbury to see the 123-metre spire on the cathedral. The following day, we actually published one of their real identities and the information about them that they were, in fact, serving GRU officers and had been travelling under fake identities. And since then, we've been identifying more GRU officers who appear to have been involved with the Scripple poisoning. So that's been a very um, big case for us, and we've had a kind of lot of coverage in the UK because of that. It was a little bit of a departure for you guys in the way you used information and how you solicited information, wasn't it? That's correct. Um, generally, we always use open source information in our investigations because it means we can actually point to the sources we've used and we're not saying, hey, you have to trust us and you know we've got this information. With the Scripple case, it was rather different because we did as much as we could with open source information, but it got us to the point where we could possibly ID people, but we needed some additional information. So you have things in Russia like these leaked government databases of car registrations and um, you know residency information that's kind of available. So they're, they're kind of at the edges of what you probably consider open source information. And also at the edges of what we might consider kind of internationally legal, no? Yeah, I mean, this is all leaked information from the Russian government that's been kind of out there for a very long time. They've, you know, it was fairly notorious that they would be sold at marketplace and things like that. But we had to go a kind of extra step and get documents kind of from Russian government organizations who generally don't make these documents public. And that included like a registration form for one of the passports of the suspects that had his photograph on it. Mm. And using that, we were able to prove that the suspect who was had this fake identity had this real identity identity that was a GRU officer. But that is one of the rare occasions where we would go beyond just using open source material. But a big part of what we're doing is using this open source material to see you know, how much information we can get. And often it's a great deal of information. But we're not, uh, we're not saying we'll never ever use anything that's not open source, um, because we kind of just be very much limiting ourselves and what we could do investigation wise. So let's actually rewind a little bit and go back to July 2014. Bellingcat has just been formed in the manner in which you now operate, more or less. And the Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 is shot down. Where were you that day? 
I was at home, I think I was doing the ironing at the time, I, was, I just saw something on Twitter saying that an aircraft had been shot down in eastern Ukraine, and then it very quickly became apparent that it was a commercial airliner. So that was, you know, very surprising. And back then, Ukraine wasn't really a topic I'd been looking into much myself. So I had no idea, you know, which factions were kind of involved with this. Um, and immediately there were claims and counterclaims. But because it was such a big event and there's uh, you know eastern ukraine unlike syria has fairly free internet access so there was lots of imagery coming um online claims counterclaims uh, people digging up all sorts of material and wondering what was you know true and what wasn't so very early on people were already trying to kind of identify where the kind of videos and photographs of this buck missile launcher that was being transported through um supposedly through eastern ukraine on the back of a truck just before mhm was shot down and these images were now appearing online we wanted to know where they actually in eastern ukraine so people started looking at satellite imagery geolocating them figuring out exactly where they were taken and from there we could start building an idea if you know this missile launcher was in eastern ukraine it was traveling through various towns in the morning and it was heading towards what ended up being the launch site of the missile that shot down mh17 as well what made you think that this was something that you should look into specifically it was because at first we did see a lot of the images of this missile launcher being published. There were three or four to begin with, and there was lots of questions about where these were actually taken. And from my own experience working kind of mainly on Syria for the last few years, I knew there were ways we could approach this topic. And already I was seeing people on social media who were following Bellingcat's work and my work previous to Bellingcat using those same kind of techniques to identify these locations. So I kind of brought together those people who were kind of discussing this online and invited them to write articles for the Bellingcat website on what they'd been discovering. And that kind of started the early days of our kind of MH17 investigation. But back then it was basically me as Bellingcat and some people volunteering at the time. But over the following months, more and more people kind of started volunteering and sharing information. And uh, you could kind of tell people who had a good sense of what good information was and what good analysis was and those who didn't. When it first happened, who did Russia blame? So um, very soon after MH17 was shot down on July 21st, 2014, the Ministry of Defense gave a press conference where they presented what it claimed was its evidence of what happened. Mm-hmm. It didn't point any fingers, but it kind of made noises towards uh, Ukraine being guilty. What's very interesting about that press conference is we examined the claims that were being made in this press conference, compared them to the open source evidence, and basically everything they said at that press conference was untrue. For example, there was a video that was uploaded on July 18th by the Ukrainian Ministry of Interior claiming to show the missile launcher in a separatist-controlled town called Luhansk. And Russia said, no, this is untrue. This is actually filmed in another town because the billboard in the video, which was barely legible, had an address on it, which was supposedly in Ukrainian-controlled territory, according to Russia. But people actually managed to find this exact location and the sign and the billboard and find it didn't say this thing that Russia claimed it said, and it wasn't separatist held at Hansk. They claimed that the flight path of MH17 had been changed dramatically when it hadn't happened at all. They claimed there was a satellite imagery showing Ukrainian missile base where this missile launcher had been seen, or a Buck missile launcher had been seen, and satellite imagery, and wasn't there on July 17th, but we were able to show that the imagery they were using was actually more than a month old and had been edited. So they presented a series of just fakes and fabrications at this press conference just a few days after 298 people had been killed by one of their own missiles. And how did you investigate those details? 
Once we kind of established the route of the missile launcher using photographs and videos that were being shared online, um, we started looking for social media pages of people who were based in the area. So you could find people kind of discussing it on like Russian social media sites, like Vcontacta. You would find kind of people saying on social media, oh, I've just seen a Buck missile launcher driving through this town. And it would be kind of have the time of like 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. And these kind of sightings before MH17 was shot down were actually very useful because once MH17 was shot, down, there were attempts to claim that the narrative around MH17 had been faked. But as we were able to gather all these little bits of evidence, it always pointed to the same direction. And really, the story of what happened you know, was quite straightforward, but we had to evidence every kind of step of it. So we could show it eventually went to this field that was south of the final location it was sighted, and that was kind of uh, ploughed after July 16th, and local farmers told journalists the field had been on fire on July 17th, and this turned out to be the launch site. And in fact, in 2016, when the joint investigation team, the official criminal investigation into MH17, published their initial findings, they were entirely in line with what we had been saying you know, over the last two years, mm-hmm. plus additional evidence of intercepted phone calls and other details that further confirmed um, what we had been saying about the route of the missile launcher and the uh, launch site. Plus, most importantly, then they said, as we had been saying for a while, that the missile launcher had actually come from the Russian Federation. We were able to identify that there had been a convoy in Russia between June 23rd and June 25th that that went towards the border with Ukraine. And it was the soldiers themselves who were inside that convoy who had been posting photographs online. We identified the military unit they all belonged to, and that military unit had their own social media page, the 53rd Air Defence Battalion near Kursk. And there you would have soldiers following that social media page. So we looked at the soldiers and then we see who their friends are and what information they were sharing about their service. And this allowed us to actually reconstruct all the vehicles that were inside this convoy order of battle of uh, the 53rd Brigade, you know, the divisions, the battalions, individuals who are in command of different missile launchers, um, the truck drivers in all the trucks, all thanks to information that was shared on social media. Were they supposed to be sharing information? Is this just something that wasn't being paid attention to by their supervisors? They were told not to be sharing this information online. But um, in fact, um, just in early March, we've had Vladimir Putin sign a new order that now uh, makes it illegal for soldiers and the families of soldiers to share information about their service in an attempt to crack down on these kind of photographs and videos being shared online. Do you think that was a direct result of your report? I'm always certain because we're pretty much the only organisation, there's a few others, but who are really using this kind of information in this way and having this kind of level of impact on the discourse around these kind of events. Eventually, in 2016 and 2018, the joint investigation team gave press conferences that kind of confirmed all of our conclusions about what happened, um, short of naming the individual suspects we had been kind of talking about because they'll be leaving that for when they actually make the charges. On the other hand as well, quite soon after we started writing stuff on Bandicat in I think it was October 2014, the Dutch police actually contacted the UK police and interviewed me um, as a witness to the inquiry where they went through all the posts that we'd been making step by step asking me to explain how we were coming to our conclusions and finding all this information. Um, I think I may have been giving them a bit of a free training session looking back (laughs) on it. But since then, we've kind of had a good relationship with the joint investigation team. When we found information about what happened to MH17, we've shared that with the joint investigation team ahead of time so they have enough time to kind of preserve it in the way they need to do it because we don't want to release reports that result in information being taken offline that could have actually been relevant to the investigation. And I don't think they've appreciated how we've done that. Plus, the conclusions they've come to have been 
entirely consistent with what we've been coming to and often exactly the same. So I think they must have a good level of trust in the work that we're producing. Is it frustrating to have them take another two or three years to produce the same results? I don't think so because the complexity of the case goes beyond just identifying kind of there was a missile launcher in mm-hmm. Ukraine that shot down mm-hmm. MH17. They have to look like at the entire command structure of the separatists and the Russian forces that were supporting them, identify everyone's individual role in what happened, um, you know, find evidence of that. Um, they have to make the best case possible because Russia will fight this. Um, and they're going to fight it hard. So any mistakes or missteps or errors that's made by the joint investigation teams will be fully exploited by the Russian Federation. You mentioned that it was as though you'd given them a free training session. You actually lead training sessions now, don't you? Yeah, um, we've expanded a lot into training um, over the last couple of years. It's uh, we, we kind of offer these five-day workshops now to pretty much anyone who wants to pay for them, and that's created a good source of revenue for us that we're putting back into investigations and hiring more staff. So our new Yemen project, for example, we've just received a very big grant from the Dutch Postcode Lottery mm-hmm. um, as we're going to base the office in The Hague. Um, because we're doing this a lot of archiving, we need you know quite a lot of um, equipment. And of course, because we're going to get the interest of uh, definitely the Russian Federation, but I suspect the uh, Saudis and UAE will also be very interested in our work, and not in a positive way. Once we start documenting airstrikes in detail, we have to have concerns about security, both for things like server security, but also personal security for the staff working in the building. Are you already concerned? I mean, I've personally been uh, had the police come and visit me after the Scripple case to talk through about my personal security. <laughs> Um, I mean, they came to my office as well and kind of had a look around and make sure that, you know, the GRU couldn't put anything in the vents or anything like that. So that was a, a strange experience. But there's only so much you can realistically do with your own personal security, short of being surrounded by bodyguards. And um, I don't think Bellingham has the budget to do that for everyone. Um, so we've had many, many attempts to kind of have cyber attacks against us trying to access our email accounts. So um, we're kind of very aware of that side of things as well. Who are the people attending the training sessions? Well, it's a whole range of people. I mean, initially it was mainly journalists and people from kind of NGO backgrounds. But as they've become more and more well-known, it's a whole range of people, uh, kind of businesses who focus on kind of gathering intelligence for their clients who are working like oil refineries and um, you know potential conflict zones where they need information like that. Uh, we get a lot of academics coming now, seeing how they can apply it to their own work. Um, we've had people from you know every NGO you can imagine. We've had kind of people from there coming and seeing what they can do with it. Um, and it's always very very satisfying when we kind of train these people and they come back you know a few weeks or a few months later saying they kind of applied what they'd done to specific cases and you know that had real impact for them. Do you have intelligence officials coming? Um, we've had some ask, but we turn them down because I mean, they can figure that stuff out themselves (laughs) it's my opinion and it's kind of weird for the rest of the attendees if there's you know someone from intelligence you know sat there with them what about conspiracy theories how do you go about looking for a grain of truth and sometimes really obscure seeming sets of ideas um, something I've had to face ever since I've really started even just you know talking about this stuff online because you have whole communities of people who um, you know they might believe that Vladimir Putin is the greatest leader in the world and that MH17 was shot down by Ukraine um, and they find like-minded people and form communities and then you might find someone who's you know thinks Assad is wonderful and they kind of find other people who think he's wonderful and they that chemical weapons were never used in Syria and they form communities and what the internet allowed to happen is you you find between these different communities focused on different areas there's kind of common websites 
and figures who kind of you know on social media who start bringing them together it's kind of like the venn diagram of these different groups come together and when we had uh, for example um russia started bombing syria the kind of pro-acid and pro-putin people kind of came together they were drawn together um and it's got to the point now where there's russian government conspiracy theories about me personally we've had you know multiple uh, press conferences by the spokesperson for the russian foreign ministry where they've claimed uh, banning has been using fakes we had the Russian ambassador to the UK um, having a press conference after our scripple work saying that we were working for the British deep establishment. I'm pretty sure you wanted to say deep state, but would have realised that would make him sound really crazy. Um, the beautiful moment in that press conference is one of the journalists asked him if uh, he had any evidence of this, and he just said no and just looked really flustered and <laughs> embarrassed. How do you assess the impact that Bellingcat has had on news investigations, for instance? Well, kind of being inside of this kind of whole field of open source investigation and being kind of, you know, so involved with it, it's been really interesting to see over the last couple of years in particular how, um, you know, initially it was kind of NGOs who were very interested in this, Human Rights Watch in particular and Amnesty International. Now you have the likes of, um, you know, the New York Times have a brilliant team which does amazing investigations using open source material. Uh, We also now have the BBC looking into this. So it's good now to see these big media organisations kind of adopting the kind of methodologies that we've been using for uh, you know several years now. I had read in one of the profiles on you that you used to be very into gaming. Do you think that had an impact? It, it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, it's kind of the approach I take when I'm doing my work is kind of, you know, breaking it down into, you know, the, the problems that have to be solved as part of the investigation. And maybe that's something that I've learned from, you know, that kind of gaming world. I think in one way, one thing that really did play a role is I used to play a lot of these online multiplayer games where you go off and, you know, 20 of you would go into a dungeon and fight people and just that organizational skill of getting your 20 or 40 people into you know the same location online and coordinate and actually do this stuff is actually something that's proven quite useful now when you're we're working with Bellingcat with people who are working remotely what are you working on now so the big focus at the moment is getting our office in The Hague open so we can begin this big Yemen project we're doing, archiving all this material and doing these investigations. Um, that in itself is quite a mighty task. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts with that. Um, we're continuing to look into the Scripple case. We've got more material coming out about that soon. We're also, we have uh, another MH17 investigation coming out that I've been promising for the last few months, but uh, we keep finding more stuff. So at some point in the future, we'll have a new MH17 investigation that's coming out. Um, and we're also, with the opening office in The Hague, we're going to be starting a program where we're going to run workshops for local people in the Netherlands to investigate local issues. Do you have criminologists who come in? I mean, this is sort of a new form of forensic analysis. Yeah, I mean, a big part of um, our recent work has been working with organisations like the ICC um, to kind of talk to them about how this information can be used. Um, in 2017, there was actually a, an arrest warrant issued um, for a guy called Mafali in Libya, and that was based off six videos that were posted onto Facebook showing him executing people he claimed was ISIS, um, but the ICC said was a violation of uh, the law. So we were able to analyze those videos and kind of figure out exactly where these videos were filmed down to um, even we were able to identify in one case uh, there was a rows of people executed and we were able to find the rows of bloodstains on satellite imagery at the location where the um, execution took place and show they lined up perfectly with the video footage and the satellite imagery of the bloodstains. You mentioned that the Dutch Postal 
lottery. But what are the other major sources of funding that Valley Cat receives? So we've just um, got some more funding from the organisations in the Netherlands, like uh, Porticus is one of them, um, kind of these foundations uh, that are sometimes family foundations. The Open Society Foundations is another funder. Uh, the National Endowment for Democracy also um, funds some of our work. So about 50% of it comes from foundations and the other 50% is coming from workshops. But we've been looking at other sources of income, like uh, starting a membership system for people who want to support Bellingcat, as we get a lot of small donations at the moment. And I kind of want to reward those donors with um, something a little bit more uh, you know, solid than just a, a thank you. That was Elliot Higgins, whose group Bellingcat uses online investigations to hold governments accountable all over the world. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I'm your host.